After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu. I'm back with uh, a starting to be an old friend. It seems like time has just sped through from when we first met. Annie Lamont. Annie, so great to have you here once again. Thank you. So glad to be with you. I uh, Annie has a new book. Okay. And it's uh, it's called Dusk, Night, Dawn, which we're going to have to find out how you came up with that. But I just got to tell you, and I was going to do this off live, so to speak, but I, I have all kinds of, like all of us, stuff going on between everything, between COVID and the what's going on politically and the environment a lot of what you address in this book as well. And it's uh, it's tough for everybody. So I start to read this book. Well, first of all, uh, I, I didn't get the book. I'm telling everybody I didn't get the physical book, but you got me the uh, PDF, and I'm like, oh, God, I don't like reading PDFs, but I'm going to do it because it's Annie. And I started, so I started reading it, probably the first time in a long time that I've read anything on my computer like that. And you changed my whole day last night, today, in the morning, just I, people come, what are you laughing about? I'm like laughing out loud. Thank you. That's all I got to say, because it just turned some really tough stuff around. You still didn't get a book? No. Oh, well, whatever. Yeah. I got mine last night, so. Oh, you did. <laughs> anyway, anyway, thank you for saying that. I hope I hope people laugh. You know, I always say laughter is carbonated holiness, and I think once I'm laughing, I'm halfway home. Especially yeah. if I'm laughing about my own BS, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, All right. Well, how did you come up? But the the title is intriguing: dusk, night, dawn. Um, I discovered at some point that twilight refers to both um, dusk, so before the light disappears into the night, and dawn, when the light returns. And that trippy mystical light, um, whether it's evening or dawn, is um, twilight. And I felt like in these four, last four years, and then especially after the UN climate change reports and, and Australia on fire, that it was really the night, the nighttime of the soul. And, um, and so I thought dusk, night, and, and now the dawn is broken again. The dawn always breaks, the sun always comes up again. So I wanted to write about all of those um, aspects without sugarcoating um, how difficult it's been both with uh, Trump and the, uh, and COVID and the, and the devastation of the earth that you can't like Marianne Williams says you don't pour you can't pour pink paint over it all that you go straight into it and you say this is really scary mm. so where do we start yeah yeah where do we start well we start where our butts are and we start off together we start off um, in, in breathing and trying to remember to sit quietly and breathe and then we 
talk to somebody else who might be having that same kind of um, anxiety and we end up um, getting our senses of humor back or remembering that um, all we have to do today is to help take care of the poor and everything else will almost certainly resolve. Mm. Or just the fact uh, in that uh, film that uh, we, we did with Ram Dass called Becoming Nobody and at one point he, he just says, well, when is it enough? <laughs> when is what you want enough? What I want enough? When is what I want a need enough? A lot more interesting to go and see what you can do for somebody else. Right. Then, or as uh, Jack Cornfield, our dear brother, said um, midway through COVID and when it looked like Trump might be reelected, his daughter Caroline said, um, Daddy, if Trump wins, will you leave the country? And he said, no, I think I'll just stay. I'm too old. I think I'll stay here and help people into their lifeboats. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. Oh, boy. So we did this uh, um, thing at the end of last summer, which was a, uh, a retreat, an online retreat, as we're all, that's about it for all of us. Thank God for Zoom, though. I mean, look, I'm sitting here with you right now, and I wouldn't be had mm -hmm. uh, you know without this technology. So uh, we had this wonderful weekend that you were a part of, and mm -hmm. it was called Wise Hope, and mm -hmm. uh, and it talked about resilience and coming from from the right perspective uh, around all of the issues that we're dealing with, and then you. I'm, you you did you spoke the next day and hung out with everybody and part of what you talked about was uh, dopey hope. You remember <laughs> talking about dopey hope? Oh, well, we got a lot of dopey hope has <laughs> gone on. Okay, uh, that sounds right. <laughs> talk about dopey hope relative to what we were trying to get at at that at that point in time which was Roshi Joan Halifax wise hope right well that was a, i guess that just seemed a little seemed a little lofty for me because i mean she's a brilliant um uh, speaker and student and um lecturer and you know and i'm a sunday school teacher and so i don't so wise hope is very very beautiful but i i really was excited to hear all the other speakers talk about it and i thought maybe i would cover the um kind of more um uh sitting on the couch with the kitty dopey hope of um, trust of trusting that life has always seemed to pull us back up to our feet that we that it's all it seems very very hard now but that we are good at hard and this is something i'd remind my best friends or my sunday school kids we're good at hard you know we we stamped out fascism a couple times now we stamped out smallpox we we came up with anti-retrovirals and and so i feel like um we just have to look at how many times before it's been the night time for both the planet and in our, you know, at the dinner table and what worked then, what worked then was kindness and, and just taking it one day at a time. And what we were just saying that you get out of yourself, what Ramdas was saying, that you get out of yourself and become a person for others and you serve the poor. Usually if I don't have a clue what else to do, I just take care of the poor. I fill up boxes with really warm clothes right mm -hmm. now or I... Um, fill up a, a mm. box with um, canned items and I take it over to the canal district where people are in extreme suffering with COVID and always with this grinding poverty. And um, I get thirsty people water and sometimes that's just cranky old disappointing me. But you know, when I first got sober, which is like 30, almost 35 years ago, Someone said to me, I was trying, you know, I believe because I was raised by intellectuals that figuring things out is where it all begins. And, um, and that, you know, that we worshipped the, the, the Church of the New York Times. And I learned <laughs> that figure it out is really not a good slogan. And that, you, that what I heard 30, almost 35 years ago was take the action and the insight will follow. And the insight is that there's just love that, as Valerie Kaur would say, there's just revolutionary love. See no strangers. That's K-A-U-R if people haven't started reading her yet. 
and that you see everyone as a brother and a um, sister, and that if they're thirsty, you get them water. <laughs> mm. right. So that's Simple. pretty dopey, but that's my understanding. And also, another, I think another thing I was talking about, um, probably, because I usually am, is that you get outside and you look up. I always use that image of the my pastor's image of the mason jar with no lid on it with bees on the bottom, you know, walking around bitterly, bumping into the glass walls of the jar because they just didn't look up. And if they looked up, they could fly away to freedom. And so I'm outside looking up a lot and I'm mm. coaching people to do the same. You don't look up and think, well, it's a it's a medium new moon tonight you know it's a it's an okay full moon. you wake up and you say wow and that wow is like being spritzed with a plant mister and it wakes you back up again and that's really all we can do mm. day to day and hour by hours wake up again and again and again and say wow you know the great praise prayer yeah wow is right you know you talk there's a lot here about courage um, and I don't know if you, this story, you may have heard this at uh, one of those retreats in Maui uh, from Krishna Das because it, it, it's something that he experienced. Uh, and I have told it and retold it because to me it's so, so core to being able to, to, to even look up. It's core to that courage. And so uh, Krishnas was in a hotel room in Mumbai, uh, you know, a long time back with Neem Karoli Baba, with Maharaji, and uh, who was there with an Indian uh, man who was translating and all of that, de an old-time devotee. And suddenly Maharaji turned to Krishnas and he went, courage is a very important thing. And the, the other, the guy, the old, the Indian man who was the translator and old-time devotee, he said, well, wait, Maharaji, wait, this is bhakti yoga. This is a guru kripa, the grace of the guru. There's no, you know, it's like implying you don't need any, there's no need for courage, no need for, so Maharaji looked directly at Krishnas again and went, courage is a very, is a precious, important thing. Krishnadas had that for the, you know, he's had that all his life. And in every circumstance, I mean, this is fortunate for him personally, that has come into his consciousness when he's been in these moments when we cannot look up yeah. or we feel we are so stuck. And that is the moment that has allowed him to look up. And uh, so courage, yes, talk a little bit about it, Annie. Well, that's the subtitle of um, Dusk, Night, Dawn is um, On Courage and Revival. Mm. Because I felt I really started out to write a book about revival because on the last book, which I believe was On Hope, I think uh, I should have it here like a normal writer, but I believe it was called Almost Everything, uh, Thoughts on Hope or something like that. Mm. <laughs> and um, Neil would know. But um, anyway, um, everywhere I went on that book tour, people were deflated and defeated by the years of barbarity and ignorance. And, and then by the arrival, the first word of um, COVID, I guess, but then also the UN climate change report. And so I, I was thinking in my own life about revival, you know, how do we fill back up when we've lost so much sand from our burlap sacks. Where do we begin? Well, you always begin where your butt is, you know. It's the only place you really can begin. Because <laughs> where your butt is, your heart is too. I think that's in the New Testament. And, uh, and how do we fill up? We fill up through love. We fill up through loving service. We fill up through loving awareness. We fill up through uh, nutrition. What is? There's many kinds of food. We. I read a lot of poetry. I call a best friend and I just tell the truth. I say, I just hate everyone today and I hate all of life and I, I'm just <laughs> gonna go to Safeway and get a carrot cake. The, the great Safeway carrot cake does not have one actual ingredient found in nature. <laughs> yeah. Makes it so special. Yeah. 
And, and the friend will say, oh, I'm so glad you called me too. You're the only person I like besides the kitty. And, um, and then we'll start to laugh and then we'll start to fill up on laughter, on love and on truth. On You know, there's a great acronym in the recovery movement for fear, which is the frantic effort to appear recovered and to look <laughs> like you're doing really beautifully and that you have a very, very mm -hmm. elevated spiritual plan and program, which is in effect almost all the time. Mm. Um, mm. And, um, and so to tell the truth is how we felt. So I started telling stories about being really defeated and deflated at the bottom, both in my own life and with really dear friends who've gone just gone through it. Uh, yeah. And 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 what do what do what can we what do we see in the common well of elevation and revival? Well, we see um, we see people like uh, Dale Borglum. I forgot his Hindu name. What is it? Dev? Ramdev. Ramdev, who's doing the Living Dying Project. Yeah. My best friend's child just died. You know, the oh. amazing I wrote about so much. And I wrote about Janine in my book. And mm. it had been expected. But uh, Ramdev was with him for two years. And I was always with Mason, the boy who died. And he said, he said about Dale, he said, oh, it's like having the greatest friend on earth. Mm. Dale would show up and he'd be in truth with him. He wouldn't be handing out like nice Christian bumper stickers uh, that God never gives you more than you can handle. Yeah. Really? Oh, really? Thank you for sharing. Did God stop by this morning and give you the memo? And instead, Dale would show up and he'd say, yeah, it makes sense that you're scared. And, um, and Mason would say, I'm dying, Dale. And Dale would say, I'm dying too. Wow. Let's just be in that together. I'm so happy to see your mm. face. Mm. And then Mason would cry and say, I'm so happy you're here with me. Thank you. Thank you. It's scary, right, to be with a young person who's dying. So um, anyway, that's in the common well now. And stories of my friend in prison for running over somebody yeah, once she was that drunk. Was, oh Where my, do you my. start when you've killed someone drunk? start where oh. your butt is, you start where your heart is, you start with telling the truth, you start with understanding you can never make it up to the victim's family and that you're not in charge of making it up to the victim's family. You're in charge of your union with God and with goodness and with truth and with trying to save whoever else you can now and uh, trying to get sober and trying to get, trying to get right with God. And um, so I had all these stories, you know, and I love I think you and I have talked about this over the years, but that great line of Barry Lopez is that sometimes we need a story more than we need food. And so I started mm. telling stories of revival and renewal and um, courage. And, uh, you know, the courage of someone in prison for killing somebody drunk who finally says the words out loud to another prisoner and to her own mother, I may... <laughs> be an alcoholic in the prisoner's chair, uh, chair and they take her to her first meeting and she hasn't had a drink in three years you know and mm. she becomes part of the California Conservation Corps where she's helping remove the brambles and the brush that is contributing to the fires in California and so she saved, she can't save the family of the victim she can do anything she can think of but she can also save other families she can help save the earth we do what's possible, yeah. you know. Uh -huh. Period. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was that's quite a story of that woman who had that one moment in her life that just totally altered everything for her. For her and for a number of people. And for, for a number of people. Family, yeah. She basically brought down with her and and you know spent a hundred thousand dollars getting only four years in prison. And the family of the young man she, whose motorcycle she hit, or forgot, no, he was a pedestrian, or someone else who hit somebody on a motorcycle. And um, it's pretty hard stuff to live with, but as we started out saying, we're good at heart. You just need the right companion, you know? And you push back your sleeves, and they say, like Dale Borglum says, with his living, dying people, um, it's good to see you today. I'm glad to be with you. When maybe other people aren't so glad to see you, mm. someone else says, I am. 
Yeah. And that's maybe where a lot of it, the courage starts. Yeah, yeah, right there. Beautifully said. And uh, you also say uh, in the book, this one, to me, really important, a bit of a double-edged sword, actually, but stories can be our most reliable medicine. I love that. And, of course, there's also the stories that we tell ourselves and believe in that uh, is not reliable medicine. That we make up. Yeah, yeah. well, that's where all of my mental problems come from, are the stories that I make up, usually about other people, <laughs> and, and how they're, they're, they're to blame, and how their behavior should be straightened out um, in an appropriate way, which I will discuss further, and then at, uh, after which I think we'll all be more comfortable, and I'm glad <laughs> to see them. And mm-hmm. as soon as I realize I'm doing it again, you know, that awareness of it, there's the three A's. There's the awareness, the acceptance, and the action. The awareness is, I'm doing it again. I've made up this story about really how unworthy somebody or disappointing somebody else is, and uh, I'm doing it. And the acceptance is, of course I'm doing it. I was raised doing it. My parents did it. We we did this as a family. We blame, My parents couldn't stand Christians. My parents couldn't stand Barry Goldwater. And, and we were, and it made us feel better then, right? I accept it. I, I, it's also part of my comfort zone is believing other people are the source of my unhappiness. It's one of my self, it's how I self-medicate. So I accept it, whatever, it's fine. Yes, I'm doing it again. And the action for me, because I usually at that point I'm separated from God, I'm separated from myself, I'm separated from the umbilical flow of life and to, to the divine is to do some sort of radical self-care to go get myself a cup of tea, to go get myself a fun-sized pack of M&Ms, or, you know, to, <laughs> to get in bed with a kitty and a good book and to mm. call off the rest of the day, or to get the new issue of People magazine, you know, <laughs> and the Safeway carrot cake, whatever the ra- or to call someone and to say those magic words, do you have a minute? Mm. And if I called mm. you, Ragged, no matter what you were doing, no matter what you had on your docket, if I said, Ragged, do you have a minute? You'd mm. say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it reminds me of a, a story, Annie. Uh, we're putting together a book at the foundation um, called "The Remarkable Heart of Ramdas," just people's stories about him. And there was one; I, it was either, I think, Sharon, Sharon Salzberg. Mm-hmm. She said, "One time I was visiting him, and." We went, he said, I'm going to, I am not answering my phone because I'm really exhausted. I've been on one tour after another. I've been working with people who are dying. I, you know, all the things that he did. So they sat down and they were just chatting. Suddenly the phone rang and he looked. Everybody looked at him because he had just said this. He could not not take that call. Yeah. That somebody needed his help, yeah. and that's uh, and that's again to me that's the one of the most uh, core examples of a great human being that he expressed, which is he could not not share this stuff. He could not not take that call, mm-hmm. and he actually said it to me, and I've said this. A, a billion times as well. I said, well, why did you come back from India after meeting this extraordinary being who told you, don't talk about me in America? And that's all you did. What what, uh, what were you doing? And this is just a couple of, you know, a few years ago. And he said, I, I had a jewel. I could not not share it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just yeah. love that. Me too. Mm. Um, Annie, do you mind if I? Uh, well, <laughs> I want to read something, which is the delight. It it made me so. It was so fun. It was so real. It was so delightful. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Maybe I don't know because this is Annie's personal relationship with her new husband, fairly new. And, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, she, she put it in the book. <laughs> I think I can read it. 
All right. Yeah. So if you don't mind. Not at all. Um, so uh, this is a little bit uh, in the middle of uh, something you were talking about, but I blurted out my grievances, all the secret ways I judge him, meaning Neil and his husband, all the ways I judge me for judging him. Also, that he acts very superior sometimes for such a spiritually evolved man. Also, when we were at it, that he locks the bathroom door when he does his morning toilet. I listen to his electric toothbrush and shaver in the shower, wondering why would he lock out his perfectly nice new wife? Maybe he was shooting heroin in there. <laughs> I love those random thoughts. And this guy, this guy thing, not specific to him, but he never wipes his glasses when they're all smudged. How can he see through the lenses when they're like a motorcycle windscreen after a ride through the desert? He doesn't wear sunscreen and likes to get a tan, even though my father died of melanoma, so it's very triggering for me. Also, when we have an argument and I am explaining my position, he tilts his head in a domineering male way. I don't know how many times I've been accused of this, by the way. And if you read between the lines, you can tell he's thinking, you can't possibly think that like that because it's so stupid that if you actually thought it people would have to kill you <laughs> and, he, and he puts butter in absolutely everything although it's fattening and uh, oh my god he does he cooks rice with butter and then he puts butter on top of the rice when he serves it oh, I, I swear I must be a saint mm, boy oh boy so you use this is a bit of a theme throughout the book actually my sainthood, or how annoying he can be. Yeah, you know the boat. Yeah, the just oh, yeah, the both. the back and forth yeah. that takes place. It's so great, um, and uh, uh, I like this other. But you, you're just a champion of coming up with these incredible phrases that uh, say so much. There's at one point we're talking about. You're talking about, you know, all the things that. Uh, Put a yucky varnish, shall we say, on our and on our souls, and so you talk about needing soul Windex, and I thought that is a perfect analogy, soul Windex, right? Yeah. Well, I think I know. I mean, I believe with every ounce of my being that the soul is eternal and is within and really can't in any way be damaged or destroyed but it does seem to me like a windshield on a car that it gets smudged by the constant data stream and and the, what we we're talking about the crazy thoughts you think usually about other people's behavior or disappointment in yourself or or whatever and they get smudged so how do we how do we clean them? And really, that's what we've been talking about here today. We, t we clean them with truth. We clean them with humor. We clean them with stories and poetry. And we clean them by getting back outside again, getting into nature and, and uh, letting, uh, letting ourselves be available for me to be cleaned. Yeah. And at some point, I mean, we always... As we talk, we always have this overlay of what we have been through here in the last year, in the last four years, and so on. And I mean, look, you and I are sitting here. We live on, in California, both of us. What's going on in, east of us is very, very difficult to even ponder. I mean, it's a nightmare literally heartbreaking it breaks your heart but it breaks your heart open right and that's a good thing mm. carly simon said there's more room in a broken heart and um and it breaks your heart open and you do what is what is possible for either of us to do today well we can send money to the red cross we can send money to people that are getting fresh water they have to boil their water now but they don't have power and sometimes they don't have gas because the pipes are frozen so what do we do? We do what we can. We get them water, we get them warm meals, we get the sick people medicine. But we can't get to Texas, so we send money and we say, tell, tell me how I can help. Whatever you need, I'm in. Yeah. And, and you talk about this, and I'll just uh, reference it uh, in terms of what's going on, and, and it leads to certainly a lot of 
lost faith, lost mm -hmm. trust, mm -hmm. and it can be debilitating, especially if you don't really maybe have that person to call. Do you have a moment? Mm -hmm. And uh, and you bring this up. Um, where on earth? We can we begin to recover our faith in life in the midst of so much bad news and dread when our children's futures are so uncertain? And you say we start in the here and now. That's why they call it the present. We start where our butts and feet and minds are. We start in these times of inc incomprehensible scientific predictions, madness and disbelief. Aging and constantly nightmarish airport delays. Those aren't <laughs> happening much anymore, at least not for me. And we look up and around for brighter ribbons. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, um, it is so difficult just to, for so many people to be able to find that uh, little kernel of trust and... Uh, a little bit of uh, wise and dopey hope uh, mm -hmm. combined together. I think that <laughs> they're part of one circle. And uh, I, I've talked about this a lot, you know, when we would be in Maui. I mean, trust for me was one of the most important, important ingredients in being able to, um, to keep on trucking especially with what's going on now. And what does that mean? And what does that look like for you? Trust. Trust. Well, you know, I'll be 67 next month. And um, am I older than you? No, you are not. I am older than you. And you don't look anything like that. Oh, we're very sweet. 67. 67. Yeah, I got Medicare three days before my wedding. Um, <laughs> not bad <laughs> yeah uh, the trust for me I'm 67 and I'd say I began to have a very very deep trust in life about 20 years ago you know and I think it's really the, a very long road back from a childhood that was very frightening because there were there was an unhappy marriage. My parents were very unhappy. My dad drank a lot. My mother was hugely overweight and had an eating disorder and black belt codependence. And I got teased a lot and bullied a lot because I had very, very strange and different looks. I didn't know I was beautiful. And, um, and I learned to um, work around trust. You know, I wrote a book. I, now I won't remember it either. <laughs> It might have been Hallelujah anyway, the mm, Mercy we, book. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that book. Yeah, yeah. and um, it was about how uh, by kindergarten or first grade, you, you put away a lot of the stuff that you came blessed with, which is mercy, that you go to, you know, you, you kids are, I mean, kids can be beasts, but they also will give away everything you give them and that you want them to keep, i.e. if you're a mother or grandparent, you make them lunch, you want them to eat it, or and they give it away because someone has a bad lunch or they spaced out and they left it on the bus or whatever. And, and the kids give away everything. And by about first grade, when you're really on the blacktop with the big kids, you stop putting away that um, natural compassion and mercy because it doesn't really serve you. And your parents tell you not to do it. And your teachers tell you not to do it. And it starts being a thing that you do better than others. You start to understand that um, you want to do, uh, you really want to be the best, you know, not to plagiarize Melania and be best, but <laughs> you have to find the line between being best but also not alienating anyone because you're smarter than or whatever you're better at math and science than the boys you're 50s 50s you weren't allowed to to be better than the boys um and so i put the mercy and i put the trust in in the drawer and originally hallelujah anyway which is the name of a gospel song um was called the open drawer because it was about going to the drawer and getting it out. And kids have that kind of excruciating, lovely, heartbreaking trust that people, grown-ups will care for them. 
and a lot of the grown-ups were on had this kind of caffeinated neglect because they had so much to do and they were struggling to get ahead and they wanted people to be uh, they wanted to have lives that other people were envious of that was kind of I think the game and um, and so you were either neglected or there was a lot of shame in my childhood and in the childhood of every girl who grew up to be a woman I know because their bodies weren't the right bodies or their their hair wasn't thick enough or or in my case was just crazy kinky ringlets or or you know or that you develop too late or you develop too early what an even worse nightmare and um, and so you just developed this shame the acronym of shame is should have already mastered everything and you're eventually a teenager and you haven't mastered everything and you're in your 20s and you haven't mastered anything and you're in your 40s and you haven't mastered every anything or everything but in your 40s you start to realize that this you have been trying to do something impossible which was to master everything mm -hmm. and so you start throwing out a lot of stuff and obsessions and concerns um, that were keeping your airplane flying way too low for those first 35 years and you get you stop caring as much about what you look like you know what your what your thighs look like or or your tummy or whatever and you think wow my tummy is so welcoming you know and people seem to really like to rest their head on it and <laughs> you get rid of so much stuff like you start throwing out files or like I in my early 40s I called the San Francisco Public Library and I said could you send a van over the weekend and I got rid of hundreds of books that I had always moved with and, and set up in my bookshelves so that people would see that I had read them and that I was sure I don't have much of an education but that people could see how smart I am to have read these fancy books. <laughs> I'm never going to read them again or people had given them to me. I either had read them or hadn't or never would was going to. I gave away hundreds of books to the San Francisco, friends of the San Francisco Public Library. And so when you start lightening by getting rid of obsessions, stories about yourself, papers you've collected and whatever, then you start to get your trust that what is left, what remains, you know, often people have to get terminal illness to get rid of so much BS. And, and maybe there's a way, maybe there's a way to lighten and lighten and lighten through forgiveness, through other kinds of release, to um, see what is left when when a lot of the persona and the the uh, what's it called in in Hollywood uh, when you have a false front whatever on a movie set where you have a false yeah. front you start getting rid of that stuff and you're kind of sitting there and you're suddenly a Samuel Beckett character you know and but the grace in waiting for Godot is that uh, in the very beginning there's a, a a branch with no leaves on it and at the end of the third act there's several little bright green leaves on the tree and maybe you start to see how profound and extraordinary that is those three green leaves and you start to see that your own true self without the false fronts and without the persona and without the finery in which you never really felt that fine because it's actually always going to be an inside job is enough and is very touching and has been turned into a font for or a little campfire for other people to come warm their hands on because you've gotten rid of so much that was not really your idea to begin with so that is where my trust came from was the the, the, the being, you know, I always had these sort of birth coaches and doulas, whether they were therapists or my teachers and my sponsors who helped me give up, release, 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 hand it over. Let me take it for you for a while. If you want it back, I'll give it back. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so that's where trust came, that I actually was, um, that I became a reliable person. I became a trustworthy person. I, uh, I wasn't making up stories all the time to impress you or to make you see how utterly victimized I have been and thus deserving of your love, hmm. you know? And it was a process. And uh, I was talking to somebody who's had terminal cancer, fourth stage. She's 40 years old with a seven-year-old, and, and she turned 40 yesterday on Ash Wednesday. And, um, and I said, oh, you're going to love your 40s. You're going to love your 40s because you're gonna do the work that life asks you or helps you uh, or offers you the chance to do of this lightening and this release where one day at a time on any given day, 
you're going to be you're going to be lifted you're going to be pulled back to your feet you're going to be nourished you're going to be noticed and you're going to be delighted in one day at a time starting it on your 40th birthday mm. that's my belief yeah wow and uh you speak of this little uh, in the book um which is i can't think of anything else i so totally related with regarding my earlier part of my life and that is that you had a governess growing up and that governess was called dread yeah right and you say she, she kept me alive i didn't run out into the street didn't talk to strangers didn't sass wipe front to back minded my manners and teachers stayed on my toes did well in school uh, let me see where I just wanted to read this part. Um, my parents did not hire her to keep me small and obedient, to keep me separate from all of you and all of life and most of me. I hired her. I was three or four. She was my most reliable companion, always there for me, like God in a bad mood. <laughs> Dread taught me how to taught me how to succeed and why it mattered, how to survive the caffeinated neglect you just talked about of my home life, the bullying on the blacktop, the equally fraught states of isolation and intimacy. She kept me in line, helped me to be someone everyone would like. She got me where I am to, to where I am today. Um, every one of us has that governance has had that governess, I would say, in one way or another. I mean, it, of course, the way you put things so wonderfully, uh, the metaphors and so on that are uh, capture the essence. But I would say, wouldn't you say, we all have had, because I looked at this and went, yeah, I had that governess, absolutely. And I can't think of anybody that I know, you know, all the people I was in India with and all that stuff, they all had that governess. And that, and it, and it's not like it's it doesn't completely a hundred percent go away. You carry it through in different aspects and believe in it. You know, it's that place where you go back to uh, believing in that BS in in those thoughts and so on and so forth. Well, I've been really blessed by um, Neil's work. Um, he, you could. He has a website called Shapes of Truth and a book coming out called Shapes of Truth too, and it's a lot about um, well, it's a lot about the Diamond Heart approach and, and the stories that we make up about ourselves. But it's also about all the ways in which um, we stay small as part of the contract we sign, both to the culture and to our parents, to stay small and afraid, and uh, and sort of disappointed or you know, ashamed of who we've been to other people in our lives. Um, and it is all um, a kind of misguided attempt to keep us alive. The child's equivalent that you just read is that we didn't run out into the street, right? But the adult equivalent what would be that we don't fly. We don't leave our comfort zones and, tr and try wild new things. I mean, for me, this is kind of tooting my own horn. But at the age of uh, 62, to fall in love with a man who was 61, who uh, was allergic, violently allergic to cats, which means that oh, yeah, that's crazy. We could be in the same house together, um, uh, was really terrifying. But because the dread has gotten so much less um, dominant in my consciousness. Um, I was able one day at a time to tiptoe into um, trying this brand new bold experiment in loving a healthy and available man. And um, <laughs> the, the work at Shapes of Truth is to identify the governess. Well, I, it's my term, governess. He would use superego. Mm -hmm. um, and he helps people bring the superego forth. And so you can just like talk on Zoom with your superego. But um, for me to, and for Neil in the superego work, to help find other projects for the governess to work on besides you. Yeah. you know? 
your own self. So that one thing Neil and I came up with was we could say to this um, governess how grateful we are that she's kept us alive, but that we um, right now we think we're probably okay on our own. Um, but that maybe she could go be in the library or the study and be a kind of an ethical consultant for <laughs> us. So whenever we needed an ethical consultant, we would go get the governess and, and be able to mine her great understanding of life, fear-based but um, and, and uh, good manners-based. But otherwise, we thought we might be okay for now to make our own decisions and to follow our own dreams. Mm. So. And intuition, yeah. Uh, just back to the uh, talking about trust. Mm -hmm. I keep, I just keep thinking about it and thinking about you. So he is that person you can call? Do you have a moment? Mm -hmm. And and that whole action, that taking of that action, the receptivity on the other side is, is to me grace. That's how I would put that. Uh, but there's something you say. I thought. I was nuts and pathetic, you know, at one point in your life you're talking about. And then friends said that my soul was fine inside the rubble. They would help me clear it away. That's what trust is. Mm -hmm. You understand that that is all available and possible in most mm -hmm. everyone in our lives. Yes, there may be some people who are so abused and so uh, separated from any kind of awareness that of that possibility, but most of us have that, right? And that's what I just, yes, they will help clear that rubble. That's what we call, you know, from the Hindu thing, satsang and community, basically. Well, um, Henry Nouwen, the great uh, French Jesuit who uh, ends up at Harvard also like Ramdas. He um, left it all, left the fame and the Harvard and the, and the bestseller list, and he went to live in a little community of, of development, severely developmentally disabled people. And for the rest of his life, he, for 20 years, he took care of a man who could never say one word to him. And he called, in, he called that his, the, the beloved community. I believe Martin Luther King called it the precious community, right? But it's the field of trusted souls right around you who, to whom you can say anything. And to, you might have to preface it by, can I tell you a secret? Can I tell you something very scary about myself? Uh, and, um, and in that, if a community is one other person, you know? And for me, I mean, it seems so... I uh, can't daunting that's the word you know when you kind of wake up and you're in the rubble but it's really like pickup sticks you know where there's a few easy things on the periphery that you can pick up right away right you don't risk the whole pile tumbling back to the ground you can pick up some of the um, pickup sticks really easily and some not quite as easily but you can do it it's and, and so you start there you know you don't start uh who was it who said maybe it was wrong Doss. Um, maybe it was Marianne Williamson. I have no idea. But somebody said, when you, just, when you remember that life is forgiveness school and that your life is going to be about forgiveness, you maybe don't start with a Gestapo, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, maybe uh, talk, you maybe start with your, your cousin who um, <laughs> always says this thing that really drives you crazy so that you hardened your heart against him. Yeah, Cousin Ernie. Yeah, Cousin Ernie. You start with Ernie. And um, so, you know, you start where you are and you start where you can. Mm -hmm. So, um, and if, you know, if you, listening to this thought that you don't have a precious community, a beloved and trusted community, who you will help develop their trust muscles again, um, then you ask yourself why, um, you know, why, actually why is not usually a very, um, useful question and figure it out is never a good mantra but you become aware of it you've become aware that for whatever reasons probably fear and and um a lot of different fear and and uh grief and anger which are the, those are the three ways home right you and i have talked about this in other mind rolling things and in our that that grief you, you, you we run screaming from the grief the anger especially if you're a woman and the fear, because they, they're not hip, slick, and cool, and they don't make you look like you have a very elevated 
um, spiritual program where that the Dalai Lama will want to come for lunch next week. But that's where you go, you go straight into them. And if you, because of them, have found yourself without someone to call and um, ask if, you, if they have a minute, then you say, this is very good information to have. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to start right here, and I am going to find one person, and it could be one writer, could be one book, could be one podcast, could be one episode of Mind Rolling. It could be one um, Jack Cornfield guided meditation. It could be one thing Dang. where you start and you push back your sleeves and you say, okay, I'm in. Mm. And then God, 100% of the time, if you seek your precious community, 100% of the time, the phone is gonna ring the email's going to come, or you're going to end up at the park with your dogs with somebody who forgot a mask, and you give them yours, and you use your bandana for a mask, yeah. or whatever it happens to look like. There will be a person who says, hello, or thank you, or wow, that was really sweet of you, and all of a sudden, not only is your mind rolling, but the ball's rolling now. And if, you know, I, I always believe that if I get what I pray for, I'm shortchanging myself. Or if I, if I get what I want, I'm shortchanging myself. If I get what God wants, you know, check back with me and Ragu in six months, and there will be people surrounding you who are there for you, who you meet with, or you Zoom with, and you have a cup of tea with, who laugh um, when you share your foibles and your these incredible stories you've made up about yourself, and who have said, oh yeah, me too, I've done it, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then you're home free. Yeah. Welcome back. Mm. Welcome home. Yep. They're beautiful, beautiful. That is the truth. Uh, we're close to the end of our hour, but um, I, I have to mention this one thing and, and not to get, I mean, it's a chapter in the book. It's called Repentability. And uh, only you could come up with that phrase. And, and it's about excelling during tragedies and bringing our best selves to serve the suffering I'm reading in the book. In a devastated world, nation, community, family, we keep our we keep each other company when children or pets are missing, when our last auntie or old dog dies. Uh, this, of course, and you've centrally being, have been speaking to this very, very question in this, uh, this time, in the times that we are living in. And I, th I think it's just a, um, absolutely elementally important thing that, just look around. I mean, you just described a situation where you will be able to find that one thing and you have enough of gumption and courage to to listen to the podcast, the, get the, the book, do whatever comes to you that is grace and act on it. And and then the other thing, and that's why I love this uh, that's in the book, is, is re we are are absolutely repentable. We are. And if it's easy to see just looking in these times at the kind, just walking down the street where everybody's in the same boat and just that one glance. Oh, yes. Okay. We're here together and good morning. Mm -hmm. We are as vulnerable as kittens, and but we have each other. And that's usually enough for me most days. But the, um, repent, to repent means you change directions, you change course. It doesn't mean what a right-wing Christian would say. It means that you understand that if you keep going in the direction you're head up, heading, you're going to end up, you know, you're going to end up somewhere that really might not have anything to do with your heart or your soul or your breath or your, your uh, what did Ram Dass call it, your heart cave, your, your you know, the love energy. And so you maybe change directions, but I'll just close. I love this image. I think every single time you've asked me um, to speak, I've ended up using it. But there was this guy, and my mind has gone blank, but who helped Bill Wilson get um, AA started in yeah. 1935. He was a priest, but he was not an alcoholic. And um, he said to Bill Wilson, sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses. And so, um, you know, I wake up sometimes and... 
God, especially before uh, January 20th. And I would just have like this, the, the smudged glass, the bad, I have the bad glasses on where I'm feeling restless, irritable, discontent, and I want things to change. I don't, I can't be in acceptance. It's just blah, blah, blah. And then I realize I have the bad glasses on. I'm in, I'm feeling victimized. I'm feeling self-righteous. I, you know, you got a problem. You probably got to go look in the mirror. They are really, it's not them, you know. Usually it's the bad glasses that we've got on with which we're looking at them. And so as a conscious act of loving awareness, of radical self-care, we take off the bad glasses and we put on the good glasses and we look around for signs of God. And I make my little kids do this all the time in Sunday school. We have these God walks and we look around and you might see a blue bell, which is like a quarter of an inch blue flower. And you look for that and you go, wow, that is so delicate in that blue. You can't recreate it in with art. I mean, that is only God at her most show-off, you know. And then and you look around and you do faith walks. We cover each other's eyes with kerchiefs and we lead one another around into the fresh air or into the mist if it's a foggy morning here. And we know that we can trust that person whose hand we're holding to lead us around safely and keep us from bumping into poles, you know? And so you do those, th you, you put on the good pair of glasses and you look for, you look for God, you look for goodness, you look for good orderly direction, you look, grace is, you know, spiritual WD-40, you look around at all your neighbors who have come through this catastrophe of, of virus and ill management and bad will and we are still loving each other, we're shopping for each other, we're stopping, we're wearing our masks, we're standing 10 feet away, we're putting blessing on each other, and we're, um, we're doing just beautifully, yeah. one day at a time, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we, it's, repentability is inimic to who we are and our relationship with the divine, in my mind. And uh, by the way, I can't leave without, because uh, we, we talk so much about trust. Okay, here's something, and you say this, we'll end with this. Uh, here's something that cannot be trusted at all, and that's the mind. <laughs> and you say here, my mind, not always to be trusted. And it's for entertainment purposes. If you kind of look at it that way. It's uh, like an arcade. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you'll get a little bit, we will get a little bit more spacious around the, uh, oh my God, this is real. And that every thought that's come out of my head that I wouldn't want anyone to see is not to be trusted. I know. Well, you'll okay. see me sometimes with a rubber band around my wrist so, and yeah. I snap it very, very gently, because we get addicted to that thinking, too, and to the pinball machine of the mind. It's our mm. comfort zone. Mm. And But when I'm done, when you know, the willingness to comes from the pain, and I'll gently snap a rubber band, <gasps> it spritzes me back awake, out of my mind, into my heart, and then I can breathe again, and then I am umbilically connected to the divine through you, through nature, through my through my animals, you know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to okay. break it, so yeah. I may have to dump my my rosary, my mala, and get that rubber band because maybe a little bit of a snap is is gentle a good thing. snap. Oh, it's, it's a gentle, gentle snap. snap. Okay, well, I I can be a little rough. So it will spritz you back to the to the <laughs> love energy of the here and now. Mm, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Annie. I love hanging out with you. You are so dear. And uh, everybody, of course, we're going to have everything you all need to order the book. All right. So don't worry for a moment. And uh, we might even put a couple of other books in there. Annie has uh, quite a number. This one's called Dusk, Night, Dawn. Okay. And uh, whatever else, we have links. We have Annie at different retreats, and we've got all kinds of wonderful stuff that I'm sure they'll find and share. And, uh, yeah, 
We'll see Thank you. Thank you. I love you, Raghu. I love you too, Annie. We shall see you all. This is uh, Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and you will be able to uh, listen and um, share these wonderful words of wisdom from Annie and my friends. And we've talked about Jack Cornfield. Of course, Jack is there as well. And Ram Das and Krishna Das and Sharon and... Uh, Joseph, yeah, yeah. So we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. 